listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us every week as we look at one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what is likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. The working class, is it a volcano bound to erupt? That's the idea we're discussing this week after a recent article by Joel Kotkin on Spiked. Keith, what's Kotkin's theory here? Why does he think working-class people around the world are on the precipice right now? I think working-class people feel neglected. The political classes are ones that concentrate on the wealthy, either wealthy in the area that they're traditional business owners or small to medium enterprises, or that you're part of the newly enriched IT class, etc. There are a lot of ordinary people that feel themselves to be isolated Now, this is not a new development. If you remember, Sir Robert Menzies during World War II talked about the forgotten people. Mm. The the forgotten people were not the workers, they were represented by the Labour Party, and not the super wealthy, they were represented by big business. Instead, he targeted the sort of what we would call the aspirational middle class and lower middle class. So this is an issue that bounces back and forth that we end up with politicians, Hillary Clinton is a great example of this, politicians who just take the working class for granted. So if you go back to 2016, I was involved in a dispute at an international investment conference here in Sydney. Oh, yeah. And the other person on the platform was from PIMCO, which is based in California. It's the largest bond-dealing organisation in the world. And we were asked to comment who was going to win in November. And this person was a supporter of Hillary Clinton because the wealthy were supporting Hillary Clinton. I have just read an article by the American filmmaker Michael Moore. Mm. Michael Moore is not a Trump supporter, but he is a Trump demographic. Right. In other words, he's, he doesn't have a college degree, mm. which is a nice polite way of saying you're not terribly well educated. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a college degree. <laughs> he's from the Rust Belt in the United States, Flint, Michigan, etc. And he had written an article warning the Democrat Party that Trump was going to be eating their lunch in the elections. And I just recycled the various arguments that he'd advanced. Other speaker from PIMCO just went into orbit. (laughs) (laughs) This is an audience of accountants. (laughs) They're not used to fireworks on the stage. I bet. And the sequel to this is that at the end of the year, I was in Melbourne to speak at an investment conference, and there were two people in Melbourne who'd seen this fracas in Sydney and so they were so shocked by what I'd said about the chances of a Trump victory that they'd spoken to this PIMCO representative. And she reaffirmed that she thought Hillary Clinton was going to walk home so easily. And then she said, and besides, I've never yet met a Trump supporter. Now, of course, what she does, she's based in California. She flies to Wall Street. So she flies within five miles yeah. of those Trump supporters. <laughs> and so there are people who are in this working class who just feel they get taken for granted because, as Hillary Clinton said in 2016, these people, these traditional Democrat voters, will vote for me because there's no way they're going to vote for Trump. Mm. So I don't need to visit their constituencies. And that's exactly the warning that Michael Moore was giving. So there is this risk of the volcano waiting to erupt. It's interesting. This is a phrase that came from a French political scientist a couple of centuries ago when he could see the impact that the Industrial Revolution was having on society 
in Western Europe and the United States. The French commentator de Tocqueville said that we're living on a volcano mm. because this is going to erupt. And, of course, it did erupt. You know, we had the rebellions in Europe. We had the 1917 Russian Revolution. So we've had a succession of instabilities. And Joel Kotkin is saying we've got to be careful. We're going to go back to that. We see it with the Yellow Vest movement in France. These are people who are not your traditional revolutionaries. They're not people who are hidebound with Marxist theory. They're not one of those who, who are interested in the toxic culture wars, etc. What they're worried about is inflation and particularly jobs for their children. And so they can see their societies going through a massive amount of change and they are then going to be voting for the candidates who address their concerns, which are not political correctness issues, but it's, in fact it's inflation, unemployment, etc. Look at the new leader in Italy who may or may not be a descendant of the Mussolini fascist movement. She's trying to moderate that image, although she still has the, the Mussolini logo as part of her party logo. But she is somebody who's come right from the extreme. And that's exactly the warning that Joel Kotkin is giving us. Unemployment is obviously a huge problem that's affected the working class in recent years. How is that contributing to bubbling tensions? It's contributing to it because it means that there are a lot of people who have been told over the decades... You work hard, get educated, and then you'll get a job and you'll be looked after in that job for life. Mm. Traditionally, that's not been the case. If you go back before 1750, you'd be working on the land and you may have work during the seasons of harvesting, but then there'll be other periods when there was no work for you. So we invented jobs in 1750. So a job is a specific amount of work. You sell your time for a specific amount of pay, and that's the industrial model which particularly peaked after World War II and gave rise to the good educational opportunities, certainly which I enjoyed. I'm a baby boomer. And we were able to enjoy these great privileges. But for many people, the writing is on the wall Mm. and they can see that they're not going to be getting that. Even something as basic as the pension, for example. In the old days, you were guaranteed a pension. Now, the guarantee is that you will pay into the pension. There's no guarantee what you're going to get back Mm -hmm. if you get a a downturn on the stock market, et cetera. This is adding to the anxiety that people feel. And this is reflected in in a number of ways. For example, the reduction in the number of children being born because you've got a lot of young working parents just saying we can't afford to have children and you've now got to have two people working in the cash economy in order to generate enough money in the hope that you might eventually be able to buy a house. And that's a hope for so many people. It's not a reality. It's, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. so out of out of reach for so many people. And I guess the interesting thing that Kotkin touches on is that it's not a problem specific to one country. It's everywhere, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. It's right in the, particularly in the Western world, uh, but also, of course, you see it in China as well. You're getting all sorts of local rebellions. We don't get much media coverage, of course, of the unrest in China. But if you speak to people who've been in China for an extended period of time, they get to hear the rumours of the unrest and the people who feel very dissatisfied. He says that uh, even China seems poised for an outbreak of class warfare. Since 1978, China's Gini coefficient, which is the measurement between the rich and the poor, what he calls the key measurement of income inequality, has tripled. In other words, China has gone from being a highly egalitarian country to one becoming more stratified 
in Mexico, mm. Brazil, or Kenya. Mm. And so there is this element of what's called the social compact, an idea in French politics from 200 years ago, this idea that you contribute to something and the government will then look after you. Right. So if you're in China, the social compact is that you will not rebel, you will work hard, but don't worry, the government will look after you. Mm. It will maintain stability and you will have a steadily increasing standard of living. That's now not the case. What are we seeing in Australia with this in terms of the working class anger? I mean, what kind of examples can you give where we've seen this bubble to the surface? For me, I got introduced to this topic 20 years ago, 30 years ago almost, with Pauline Hanson. Mm. Pauline Hanson, just looking back in her early life, was a fish and chip shop manager and all sorts of other areas. And Bill Hayden, who was then had been Labor leader, later Governor General, etc., a solid Labor constituency to the west of Brisbane, the Liberal Party just fielded a candidate to make up the numbers mm-hmm. and they selected this ex-fish and chip shop manager. She then became very outspoken, particularly about the blacks who didn't work hard enough and the Asians who worked too hard. Mm-hmm. And they were taking your jobs. The Liberal Party said, oh, this woman's a liability, so she's got to be removed. She then ran as an independent and won. Yep. Because traditional Labor voters would have difficulty voting for the Liberal Party, but they could vote for her mm-hmm. as an independent. Her very basic lack of knowledge, her mobilisation of resentment, etc., that's what worked. Pauline Hanson was able to exploit this resentment, this white male anger, which I wrote about at the time. Now, her problem is that she's since done very well out of Dancing with the Stars and all the rest (laughs) of it. So she's become almost part of the establishment. So that early anger that she was able to mobilise became somewhat dissipated. But I think all it requires will be another articulate spokesperson like a Trump or the new Italian Prime Minister to be able to mobilise that anger that people feel. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This week, we're discussing the working class and why it could be a volcano waiting to erupt. Now, something interesting I found in Kotkin's article was the impacts of COVID. There was an epidemiologist who summarised the impact of COVID, Martin Kuldorf, and he said, lockdowns have protected the laptop class of young low-risk journalists, scientists, teachers, politicians, lawyers while throwing children, the working class and high-risk older people under the bus. What does he mean by that? Well, it just simply meant that you had, again, winners and losers. And it's the same as we speak at this very moment in China. You've got some towns that are just being locked down, not necessarily in the same way that Joel Kotkin is talking about, because maybe some of the super rich will also be affected by the lockdowns. But yes, it, it meant that the COVID, even though, to its credit, the Australian government sought to provide assistance for the workers... Uh, nonetheless, the crisis of COVID ended up with winners and losers being created. There is a, I've got, let me just deal with a, a philosophical point here. Mm. You've got two ways of looking at this issue of inequality or equality. One is to talk about equality of opportunity. The other one is to talk about the equality of outcome. Right. So we have now moved increasingly towards equality of opportunity. So how you turn to end up either in the gutter or living in a huge mansion, that's your fault. Yes. Right? The pressure is put on you. In the old days, we would have had an extensive social welfare net, which you still get, by the way, in Scandinavia. But you get an extensive social welfare net 
which manages to reduce these extremes of wealth because the Scandinavians are concerned about the equality of outcomes. Whereas here in Australia, we have gone down this path of equality of opportunity. So we, we say at the very beginning that all people should be treated equally, et cetera, but then how they choose to use that opportunity is really their fault. Now, of course, what we know is that some people can come from homes where they are trained as good middle-class homes to make the most of each opportunity. They mm. know the importance of social capital, meeting with the right people, joining the right organisations. So, yes, they have a quality of opportunity, but they know how to make the most of that opportunity, whereas it's not the job of the state to look after people who are failing to make the most of those opportunities. So there's been quite a, a change. You know, we talk about a fair-go society. That's no longer the case in this country. And so you have these huge disparities between the rich and the poor in Australia and also in China and, and elsewhere. Mm. Which is the best way to go about it, do you think, going to that philosophical question of outcome versus opportunity? Well, I'm a supporter of equality of outcome mm. and the continuing role of the state, whether it's a state of New South Wales or a nation state like Australia, and ensuring that the losers in this race for wealth and prestige, et cetera, all get a, a helping hand at various points in their life. Now, one of the ways in which I express that is through the need to have a universal basic income. Mm. So universal basic income will mean that when you turn 18, you will receive automatically a payment from, in this case, the Australian government, and you will receive that payment until you die. So that'll replace a lot of the other allowances. But, of course, for those of us who are obsessed with work and don't approve of retirement, <laughs> we will give that money back in our taxes. Right. But you'll have other people who perhaps want to go into their garage and invent the next computer or something. Which is great. But, but it, it means that you will get people off the poverty line, and that may be a way of reducing the anger. But, again, you've got people who talk about the equality of opportunity who will say, why should we subsidise losers? Which, you know, to me seems ridiculous in that, like, I agree with you, the equality of outcome makes so much more sense. And I wonder if policy like that would lift up the working class and make them feel more valued. Exactly, yeah. because you'd be including them within society and you'll be giving you an opportunity to get involved. You'll get away from what we're now calling here in Sydney the postcode wars, mm. where you have groups of people, particularly in the western suburbs of Sydney, who are just loyal to their tribe. That's not a healthy development, and we will see increased gang warfare in Sydney. The writing's on the wall. Yeah. yeah you see that already in the United States. Well, I wanted to ask you next, we have already seen examples of the working class taking to the streets in recent years. You mentioned the yellow vests, also the truck driver protests in Canada. Yep. Is this the beginning or the movement of a new trend where we're just going to see this happening more and more? I think it's simply people who are saying we've had enough and we can't take any more. And therefore, that what they want is a society in which they can live a reasonable life. Mm. Now, of course, on top of this, to make life even more difficult is the whole climate crisis, the difficulty over resources, etc. And then, of course, you've also got the onset of artificial intelligence <laughs> So you've got a whole number of problems for politicians. And then on top of that, seeing what happened to Liz Truss a few weeks ago, you've got the whole problem of the market. What happens if you do something which the market doesn't approve of? They will drive you into reversing your policy. So it makes life very difficult now for politicians trying to govern a country. That was going to be my question to kind of wrap us up here, is who's trying to bring in this section of society? 
who's trying to win them over and make them feel validated? Well, my view is that we need a proactive policy whereby we have, for example, the universal mm. basic income, et cetera. We deal with the issue of inequality in education. Yeah. Clearly, if you ever visit a private school, mm. the quality of facilities in a private school are much better, generally speaking, than in a state school. Absolutely. So you need to equalise. So that's equality of opportunity, but you also say we're going to look at the equality of outcome. For me, the tragedy in all of this debate is that what needs to be done is quite clear, but the politicians don't know how they're going to do it. Great. We're not in great hands then initially. We're not in great hands, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm sorry I can't be more optimistic for you. <laughs> well, maybe next week, Keith. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic. Listener.